I mentioned really quickly, but Doug Brown um, will be speaking here this morning. Really excited to have Doug. He was on our high school staff, or he was on our church staff for many years, uh, primarily as our high school pastor. Doug, as maybe you've heard before, grew up at Calvary. He was a kid sitting in these pews, a teenager, a college student, and then ultimately a vocational pastor. Several years ago, he and his wife, Jesse, experienced uh, infertility. And through their own journey with that, God really opened doors for them to start a nonprofit called Uniquely Knitted. The idea of Uniquely Knitted is to come alongside uh, couples that are experiencing infertility and just let them know that you're not alone, that there's a community that wants to come alongside you and care for you, strengthen you, and give you hope. It's really the only nonprofit or, or ministry that I know of that is working in this space. It's it's been so important for so many, and I'm so thankful for Doug and, and Jesse Brown and, and their calling in this way to the kingdom. And so every once in a while, we love to have Doug just come and share with us again, so we're privileged to have him. But before we do that, let me just read the passage of today. It's from Luke chapter 5. So will you turn there? Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. We see the miracles of healing. Luke chapter 5, verse 12. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, and it says this. In one of the villages, Jesus met a man with an advanced case of leprosy. When the man saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground, begging to be healed. Lord, he said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared. Then Jesus instructed him not to tell anyone what had happened. He said, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. And this will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. But despite Jesus' instructions, the report of his power spread even faster and vast crowds came to hear him preach and to be healed of their diseases. But Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. And then verse 17. One day while Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees and teachers of the religious law were sitting nearby. It seemed that these men showed up every village in all of Galilee and Judea as well as from Jerusalem. And the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat. They tried to take him inside to Jesus, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. So they went up to the roof and took some tiles. And then they lowered the sick man on his mat down into the crowd right in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, Young man, your sins are forgiven. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law said to themselves, Who does he think he is? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And immediately as everyone watched, the man jumped up, picked up his mat, and went home praising God. 
And everyone was gripped with great wonder and awe, and they praised God, exclaiming, we have seen amazing things today. Wow. Amazing. Let's welcome Doug Brown. We unpack this. Thank you, Matt. Hi, everyone. I'm Doug. Matt did a wonderful job of explaining who I am. I did work here for 10 years as a youth pastor. Not anymore. Hopefully that doesn't give you concern for this morning that I don't work here anymore. But no, I went to go start a nonprofit with my wife, Jessie, and we serve people who are experiencing infertility. That really, that season of infertility is the root and the basis of some of the things that we're going to talk about this morning. But this morning, I want to be very clear that we're going to do something a little different. We're going to take these passages that we just read and use them to look at the reliability of the biblical miracles. We're going to take a step back from looking at just the passages and analyze the topic of miracles. And we're going to do so philosophically, logically, and looking at some interesting arguments. If you don't know, my background is in philosophy. That's all my education is in philosophy. Um, I studied at the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, known as Biola, and really, uh, thank you, there was a clap, I think, for Biola. Um, is there a rival school to Biola? I don't even know. Uh, Vanguard, maybe? Uh, uh, but yes, what we're going to do is look at and think deeply about the biblical miracles, and we'll talk about why I'm passionate about that and why we should do that. But first, let's just think the reliability of the biblical miracles. I consider myself a philosopher. I also really debate within myself, what does it mean to be a philosopher? When can you actually call yourself a philosopher? Do you have to have a degree? How advanced of the degree? I think probably the best way to think about being a philosopher is if you just think very hard about something. That's a great, that's a great definition, I think, of philosophy, thinking very hard about something. So today, we are going to think very hard about if the miracles in the Bible really happened. That's what we're going to think about. But to warm ourselves up, I think it's good for us to, at times, think very hard about things. I like to torture my children by making them think very hard about things. I often ask them, what is a donut hole? Think about it for a second. They're probably going to laugh just because I said Think about it. I say, I, I argue, when you eat a donut hole, you eat nothing. There is no such thing as a donut hole. Let me give you the argument. If I gave you a donut, a round donut, that circle, you know, glazed donut, and I said point to the donut hole, you would point to the absence of donut in the middle of the donut. That is, in fact, the donut hole. And then if I gave you the little dough ball, and I said, is this a donut hole? You would say, yes, that's a donut hole. And then I took a pencil and I stabbed a hole in the donut hole. And I said, is, what, point to the hole. And you'd point to the hole where the pencil was. There's no such thing as a donut hole. It is the absence of donut. It doesn't make sense. What I'm trying to say is when you go to a donut shop, you eat at a den of lies. <laughs> There's no such thing as a donut hole. I, always, I often ask them, hey, can I pick you up a dozen donut holes? And then people go, yeah, sure. I show up with nothing. I say, you fool. There is no such thing as a donut hole. <laughs> That's an example of thinking hard about something that doesn't matter that much, although it does, it does matter a little bit. Uh, today we're going to think about something that matters a lot, something very important, biblical 
miracles. Here's the thing. We're going to go quickly, okay? I know you probably were uh, not expecting philosophy at, what is it, like 940 in the morning, but you're getting it, so just get on board with it. It's going to be great. I promise you we're going to move quickly. We're going to talk about a lot of different things, and I don't have enough time to clarify everything. I truly don't. I wish that I did, but I don't have enough time to dive into each argument in the depth that it requires. So what I'm going to do is, in a very stylized, hopefully humorous, fun way, cover a bunch of different things. If any one of these things piques your interest, please, I have no plans today, come and talk to me. We can talk as long as you'd like after the service. Or if you feel like, wow, there really is a lot there, and this guy's dead wrong about it, sure, let's talk about it. Get, like, research. Do dive in a little bit here. So bear with me if you are a a learned philosopher and you know a lot about these things and you don't feel like I'm doing them justice, I'm probably not. I'm going very quickly, but I'm giving you, hopefully, a sort of tour guide Barbie version of the arguments that go along with biblical miracles. We're going to talk about how we got here, and then we're going to talk about the current state of the way people think about miracles, and then we're going to look at some of the evidence, the good evidence we have for believing in biblical miracles. And we're going to do it all in a pretty crazy, fast-talking, lunatic fashion. Got it? Okay? Feel good about it? So the question comes up, why should we seek to understand the biblical miracles? That would probably be a good starting point, right? Why should we seek seek to understand biblical miracles? Well, the, the first one's really easy. If they aren't true, then it's possible that it's not true, and some of us have wasted a lot of time. So think about it. If they, the biblical miracles, aren't true, then it's possible that it, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is not true. And then a lot of us have wasted a lot of time. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, 13, it says, For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and our faith, your faith, is useless. Think about poor, beloved Matt Doan. He's so kind. (laughs) He has spent so much time preaching. Literally, he's spent the bulk of his life preaching. It would have been useless. Matt Doan's life would be useless if this is not true. Poor Matt. He's such a great guy. Utterly useless. His time, his energy, from what he does, from when he wakes up in the morning to goes to bed, useless. He should be buying donut holes or something. <laughs> anything, anything more. And donut holes aren't even real. <clears throat> if it is true, how incredibly useful, right? Obviously, Matt, what a wonderful person. He spent his life doing one of the most noble things you could do, sharing the love of Christ. But it all hinges, it all hinges. Really, what we're doing here today hinges on if this is true or not. Make sense? Good. Okay. Well, we should also work to investigate, I would say, gaps in our understanding of the world. It's not good for us to have gaps in our thinking where we just assume that everything is all clear. Let me give you two examples. How about government? In a government, you want a government with checks and balances. Is it annoying? Yes, it is very annoying, but it's better than the alternative. The philosopher, the British philosopher John Locke, helped create ways where we could build tension 
into our government. Does that make sense? Checks and bounces. Every single part of the government can go to another part of the government and interfere with everything, just everything, right? Is it annoying? Yes. Is it better than the alternative? Probably. Because really, if we allow one part of the government to amass all of the power and bring all the power under itself, then it's impossible to disagree with that part of the government. They become the ruling de facto government within the government. So it makes sense for us to have checks and bounces. Many wise philosophers helped build that into our country. Does it make sometimes our governing system a little annoying? Yes. Do we argue a lot? Yes. The idea behind it is that we're checking, we're balancing always. We ought to do the same thing within ourselves. Check, bounce, check, bounce. We should be checking and bouncing our own belief systems unless one thing in our own belief system becomes the de facto government of our life and it starts to rule everything. Think about religion. We all could point to another religion and say to ourselves, can you believe they believe that? <laughs> such fools, right? Can you believe, oh, I know. Then you kind of tell the story. They believe it, and everyone's like, oh my gosh, they're so crazy. They're doing the same thing to us, right? We want a government that allows for transparency and debate. Think about the early churches, the early church councils. They had a good system of bringing people together and say, have you heard what Jonathan is preaching downtown? Yeah, let's throw him in prison. And they're like, good idea, let's throw him in prison. Because they realize that if we allow for one thing to become too powerful without being checked or investigated or looked in on, it's easy for that one thing to become problematic. And that's what I'm arguing this morning is that unless we really just look into things at times, that one thing can become problematic. That's where we get cults. That's where we get organizations, governments, societies that become problematic is when a lot of people just go, I'm sure everything is on the up and up. We wouldn't want to do that as Christians. We wouldn't want to do that as good, logical followers of Jesus and just say, you know, I assume all those crazy stories, I'm sure they're fine. We want to investigate. Making sense so far? Okay. If the biblical miracles are true, they demand our attention. These are not benign stories of radical, fun, cool, wacky things, right? We're not just peering back in on history and saying, can you believe how amazing that was? These are groundbreaking truths that, if true, have an incredible weight on our current reality. They really dictate how now we ought to live, if they are true. So they're not benign stories from the past. They are relevant data which should shape how we live now. First of all, how are we talking? How are we, how are we doing? How are we doing? Am I talking too fast? Are we doing okay? Can I get a thumbs up or a thumbs? Okay, most thumbs up, few thumbs down. So that's all I needed. Perfect, here we go. Let's look at how we got here. Things are gonna get a little bit more intense now, all right? Stretch yourself. How we got here. First things first, in the old world, everything was a miracle. And I mean, everything. The old world, if you saw a river running down a hill, you would think to yourself, the gods chose for the river to go down the hill. Moreover, you would think the river god has chosen to go downhill. When the sun came up in the morning, it wasn't that this is the natural order of the world. It was that God, the sun God, has chosen to rise from Hades this morning and shed light upon its peoples. And the river gods choose to rejoice and flow down the mountains. Everything 
was riddled with gods. Every function, every natural phenomenon was housing a god, and gods were functional. It was a very mystical world. A guy, Eugene Merrill, is a, you know, proclaimed philosopher from, from Dallas Theological Seminary. He studies the Old Testament. He says, one of the most important kinds of omens were predictions based on the appearance of end trails of animal sacrifices. That's the old world. They would sacrifice an animal, spill its guts out onto the floor of the, the sacrificial table, and then someone would come and predict the future based on the entrails of that sacrificial animal. That's a pretty mystical world. That's pretty mystical. They would spill it out and they would say, we shall get coffee next Tuesday from these entrails I have foreseen. Or they would say, probably more likely, the gods have chosen rain this winter and the rain god would rain, right? You get the picture. This was a very mystical world. Has something broken? I think something's broken. <laughs> I have broken the internet. Um, well, we'll keep going. Um, I might have to read some things and you won't be able to follow along. It'll be more challenging. How fun is that? <laughs> um, let me just gather one thought about something. Okay, great. Now, does that make sense? The old world, sorry, I just rewrote everything in my head. Sorry, we're good. Um, the old world, everything is mystical. We get that. I think we understand that. I also think we think that that's probably not the way it is anymore. I don't think many of us are looking to spill the entrails of a sacrificial animal out on the floor and predict what the future will be. We also don't think that there is a God hiding behind the sun raising it, right? We don't really think that way anymore. Part of the reason why we don't think that way anymore is because of what Moses taught us during the Ten Commandments, when Moses, during that season of the desert, Moses taught us that Yahweh, actually it's one God who's responsible for all these things. There's not a God for the sun, a God for the river, a God for the ocean. There is one God, Yahweh God, and he is the one who is responsible for all these things. But I, I truly think that the thinking still remained. They still thought at every single natural phenomenon that you see, it is God choosing to do that thing. They didn't think of this natural clockwork universe. It was that the big revelation was that there's not all these many gods. There's one God above all other gods. And that starts this transition into modernizing the world. We're going to fast forward really far all the way until, oh, goodness, we're back. That's wonderful. Um, we fast forward into... The Enlightenment, 1500s, 1700s, the Enlightenment seeks to bring all of these things into a more modern understanding of the world. It's not that there's a God behind everything, it's that the natural universe moves and is in the way that it is. The Enlightenment tries and seeks to help us understand the universe without having to point to a God for every single thing. One of the major things that we're going to look at today is an argument put forward by a philosopher named David Hume. He writes of miracles. That's the, that's the publication that he writes in 1748. And I really think it starts to change the world. And I think it's affected you today. I think many of us actually believe in what he was arguing. We may say that we believe in miracles, but if you're thinking about miracles, his argument may actually be the standard bedrock from which you start to reason. So let me give you the argument. We're going to read a little bit of David Hume. I'm so glad we have this back. <laughs> okay. A miracle 
is a violation of the laws of nature. And as a firm and unalterable experience has established these laws, the proof against a miracle from the very nature of the fact is as entire as any argument from experience can possibly be imagined. Now, before you think I've gone crazy, that's actually how philosophers write. It's not a broken sentence. He's actually saying something intelligible. Does it even, does it feel weird sometimes when you read Enlightenment era philosophers, you're like, there's too many commas. What's happening? I don't think he knows how to put together a sentence. It does feel that way. But I promise you, he is saying something. Here's what he's saying. Our experience with laws of nature are complete. We see things happen over and over. Dead people die, they stay dead. There seems to be a law of nature, and our experience of that law of nature is very complete. It's a very tricky argument. He's actually not saying that miracles are not true. What he's saying is, hey, miracles might be possible, but it's never, but they can never be empirically verified by anyone, and therefore it makes no sense that one can ever happen. So sure, there might be a miracle, but there's no way that you would ever know that there would be a miracle because we, our experience of the laws of nature are so complete that we know that one can never happen. We ought to believe that it is much more likely that someone would lie about a miracle than a miracle would actually happen. There's no reason then that takes seriously the New Testament reports or any other reports of miracles. He goes on to say in that same publication that no testimony is sufficient to establish a miracle unless the testimony be of such a kind that its falsehood would be more miraculous than the fact which it endeavors to establish. He says even further that even if you could provide evidence that a miracle did happen that was even further miraculous than the miracle itself, he still would not believe it based on the argument from experience. Is this making sense? He says that you may present to him a man who was dead and now alive. And he would say, what's more miraculous, that that man came back from the dead or that the people who saw him die were actually mistaken and that they've made up an entire lie? Well, that too would be a miracle, but it would be a less of a miracle than the man actually coming back from the dead, so you should believe the lesser miracle. He's not saying miracles aren't true. He's just saying, I doubt you've ever seen one. I'd like to sum up his entire argument by saying this. Well, I've never seen one. Hume came along to a world that believed that a lot of things were powered by gods, that many things were miraculous. And he came along and said, well, we know a lot about the natural world. And you know what? I ain't never seen one. And then he looked at his friend John. He said, John, you ever seen one? And John said, I ain't never seen one. And that changed the world. I bet even you throughout some of your deepest inner feelings, when you think about miracles, you think, yeah, they're probably, they could be true, they could be true. I've never seen one. That's not necessarily a good argument, we'll look at it, but you know what it is? It's really convincing. It's a really convincing argument. Our experience with nature is so uniform and we see things happen so systematically so many times over and over and over again that if you were to present to me a miracle claim, I would say, yeah, maybe, but I've never seen anything like that. That changed the world. That changed the world. So let's fast forward. In our current world, we are kind of split. Those who don't believe in God are split. 
They're split between something called methodological naturalism and some version of that early Enlightenment era argument. Methodological naturalism, we'll start there. That's pretty a strict view. The mindset that says we ought to be committed to looking for explanations of the world around us based on what we can observe, test, replicate, and verify. At some level, this is good. We want some type of methodological naturalism, a soft version of it. When things happen that we don't understand, we shouldn't automatically jump to some crazy explanation from it. If we were, you know, it's supposed to thunder and lightning later today. If thunder and lightning were to happen and it hit a tree, we shouldn't look out and go, oh my gosh, fire makes trees come alive, you know? Maybe if we, in the old world, we would. We would look at lightning hit a tree, maybe the tree burst into flame, and we would say, fire come from the sky, make tree come alive. You know what I mean? Like we would, we would make a song about it or something like that. I don't want to sing, but I should. Fire come from, no, <laughs> no. Does that make sense? We want some kind of version of that. But like all pendulums, methodological naturalism swings too far. And you get a strict version of it that says, no matter what evidence we have, we will never accept anything else other than a naturalistic explanation of things. That's a very strict version of it. Some people believe in that. Going forward, other people have mostly some version of this Enlightenment era model. If you were to ask, if we were to even ask us, many of us think, yeah, miracles could be possible, but I've never seen one. So really they have no point to my life. They have no, there's no reason to believe in one because I can't think of one that I've ever seen. Making sense so far? Great. <laughs> Those who believe in God, the ones who do attest that miracles, yes, they are true. The biblical miracles are true. You could say the believers are, are all mostly in agreement that the biblical miracles did happen. However, we are very split on understanding current miracles. Remember, today we're talking about biblical miracles. Did the biblical miracles happen? The stories from the passages that we read to happen, read this morning, did those really happen? If you think about our miracles happening in our modern day, that's a whole different topic that we're talking about on the podcast this week. Did you know Calvary has a podcast? Raise your hand if you knew Calvary had a podcast. Yes? You should all be listening, right? Okay, so this week I'm going to jo join Matt and Eric, and we're going to talk about modern miracles. What's, what's up with them? Do they happen? Are they real? How can we understand them? It's going to be really interesting. It's a whole other topic, and we're going to dive into it on the podcast. It's going to come out this week. Listen to it. I'm very excited about that. So that's where we're at. That's how we got to where we're at here. If I could sum it up in one word, I would sum it up the way that Hume set it up. That the old way, people used to believe in miracles. But you know what? Now in our modern world, there's really a natural explanation for everything, and I've never really seen a miracle, so... Yeah, they're crazy stories, but let's leave it at that. Not much, it doesn't have much influence on my current life. However, going back to the beginning, that's going to be a problem. If we leave miracles as that, then Matt Doan's life becomes useless. We don't want that. We want to feel confident in Matt Doan's useful life, our own useful life. We want to feel confident in the way that we worship and praise and sing these songs. I just, just... I couldn't help myself but think as we're, as we're singing these worship songs, these are crazy claims that we're making, like huge claims. God, you are the God of my life. I lay my life down to you. I sacrifice my life. I worship you, Lord. Those are really big claims. 
And we shouldn't be so lazy to say, oh yeah, I hope it's true. <laughs> That'd be crazy if it's not. <laughs> no, we want to be confident and feel good about what we're singing and doing. Because if it is true, this is the most useful place you could be. This is the most useful community you could be part of. And it's so real and powerful. If it's not, we're wasting our time. Do you see how important this is? So we've got to deal with the biblical miracles things. Let's talk about this. We're going to go quick. How can you believe in biblical miracles? Okay, first things first. We're going to breeze through these. Give me grace because you might have lots of questions. Come up to me afterwards. Here's the first point. If you can believe, or can you believe in biblical miracles? If you can believe in God, you can believe in biblical miracles. Think about it for a second. If you believe that God, and you can believe in God, that God created the world and all things in it, animated our human souls, and gave life to everything, how difficult would it be for God to raise someone from the dead? I mean, not difficult at all. It'd be child's play. So if you can believe in God, you can definitely believe in biblical miracles. So we should probably look at some arguments for God. We're going to look at three of them. Two of them have to do with the origin of the world, the universe that we live in, and one of them is very special that I'll talk about in just a second. So let's look at the first two. The first one's this. An argument from the beginning of the world, the beginning of the universe. It goes like this. Well, first I should say, do you know how arguments work? Not the arguments like in your marriage. That was a whole different, it's a different topic. Do you know how like a logical argument works? I'll give you the two seconds version. There's premises and there's conclusions. Premises are statements, and you can either disagree or agree with those statements. And then a conclusion is something that you deduce from those statements. Does that make sense a little bit? Because so here's our first statement. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. It's pretty solid. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Did we just prove that God exists in three sentences? Maybe. <laughs> Very reasonably, maybe we did, right? What would you do? You would, you, maybe you could disagree that the conclusion doesn't follow from those first two sentences. It does. It's valid. I guess you'd have to disagree with one of the first two things. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. That's a pretty good one. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. There's a lot of debate about that. A lot of people say that there's a lot of different theories. We don't have time to get into it. But this is a very good argument, one that people who don't believe spend a lot of time trying to disprove. A lot of people spend a lot of time arguing that it does, that it does hold to be this. Okay, next one. The fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Do you realize that the universe that we live in is very improbable? It's just very improbable. The set of circumstances that we see in our observable universe are so finely set that if one of them was wrong, it wouldn't have, we wouldn't have gotten to where we're at now. I like to use this example. Imagine I put you in Manhattan. You know Manhattan, the large city in New York? And I put you downtown in like Battery Park. That's a little park. It's not a very nice park, but it's a park downtown right on the end of the peninsula. And I told you, you have to make it all the way to the top of 30 Rock, which is a building, 30 Rockefeller Center, and there's an there's a observation deck at the top of it. And I said, you got to go from Battery Park to the observation deck on 30 Rock. You can only go in a straight line, and as soon as you go up, you can never go down. Can you make it? What would you think? No, probably not, of course. I can only go in a straight line. 
If I go up, I can't go down. How would I ever do that, right? The, the, the amount of t- twists and turns I would have to make are almost impossible. It's the same thing with the universe. It's that if you run it through some type of probability metrics, any type of math, you get zero. There's really zero chance that the universe could make it the, to where we're at today. So your, your, your options are physical necessity that the universe was, it has to be this way, or it randomly ended up this way, or it was designed to be this way. The argument then goes, it's not due to physical necessity or chance, therefore it's due to design. There's lots more we could talk about that. But I know what you're thinking, these are all very sciencey, boring. Do you have anything that's just straight logic? Oh my friend, yes, I do. How about modal logic? One of my favorite philosophers, Alvin Plantinga, gave us an ontological argument from modal logic. You don't even have to remember this, but just know that it exists, okay? It uses the the concept of other worlds as a thought experiment. It goes like this. If it is possible that a maximally great being exists, or it is possible that a maximally great being exists, right? Everything else after this is modal logic, and there's no way you're going to get around it. So that's the difficult one. Is it possible that a maximally great being exists? If it is possible that a maximally great being exists, then a maximally great being exists in some possible world. If a maximally great being exists in some possible world, then it exists in every possible world. If a maximally great being exists in every possible world, then it exists in the actual world. If a maximally great being exists in the actual world, then a maximally great being exists, therefore a maximally great being exists. We just logicked our way to God. How cool is that? Let's all applaud. Come on. Come on. So can you believe in the biblical miracles? If you can believe in God, you can believe in miracles. The next thing, I just want to address Hume's argument, right? That that Enlightenment era argument. Assume that there's a natural explanation for the world. It's just not a good argument. Miracle claims, as Hume says, he says they're violations of nature. That's not what a miracle is. A miracle claim is not stating a violation in nature has occurred. Or that they're just stating that we don't know what happened. We're so, we're so unsure of what has happened in the nat- natural world. What they, they're claiming that the naturalistic data cannot explain the observable event. New evidence, namely supernatural evidence, has to be counted as relevant data. This follows from a belief in God. Furthermore, you must allow for supernatural evidence to be present in the given situation, and you cannot assume that there's no supernatural evidence before you ever get to the situation. What we see in the biblical biblical accounts, the miracle accounts, is an event that is naturally impossible, as in something has happened that that is not possible given the naturalistic understanding of the world. It's not a violation in nature, but instead the natural order of things is interrupted due to new data, God. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. Let me give you a smoothie example. If I were to make, if you went to a restaurant every day and you ordered a smoothie and you always got ice, milk, and strawberries. I don't know if that's a good smoothie or not, but imagine you got that every day. And then one day you took a sip of your smoothie and you got the overwhelming taste of banana. Would you assume that a violation in nature has occurred? No. You would say, I think someone put a banana in this smoothie. Well, we ought to approach 
events in our world the same way. If God is real, and we can hold that God is real, when we approach a situation, we shouldn't say, there's no way to explain this. A violation in nature must occur, and that doesn't happen, so we can't believe in it. We should say, is there evidence, good evidence, that a supernatural intervention has happened? Is it possible that the supernatural has occurred here? That makes sense? We're doing really great. Can I just say that? You're doing great. I want you to be proud of yourselves. I'm tired, so you must be exhausted. So here we go. Let me give you one, one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis about this Hume argument. Because C.S. Lewis is, he's more than just a, a, the writers of Narnia. C.S. Lewis says this. Now, of course, we must agree with Hume that there is absolutely uniform experience against miracles. If, in other words, they have never happened, why then they never have? Unfortunately, we know the experience against them to be uniform only if we know that all the reports of them are false. And we can know all the reports to be false only if we know already that miracles never occurred. In fact, we're arguing in a circle. Does that make sense? He's saying Hume has begged the question, which in philosophy and in logic is a fallacy. You can't assume the conclusion of your argument and the premise of your argument. Does that make sense? You can't assume that miracles never happen by stating as you get going, hey, just as, we, just as we're starting up here, when we're talking about miracles, they never happen. Because we have such great understanding of the world, miracles never happen. All right, now let's see if one's happened. You'll never get there because you only know that they never happen by assuming and begging the question that they never happen in the first place. So really, Hume's argument is not a good argument. It's a giant circle. There's a guy, Doug Guyvet, who's a philosophy professor at Biola. He says, the wise do not legislate in advance that miracles cannot be, not to, sorry. The wise do not legislate in advance that miracles cannot be believed to have happened, they look at the evidence to see if God has indeed acted in history. That's what I would love to give you at the, end, at the end of that section. How can we know that Hume's argument doesn't hold? It's that it argues in a, in a circle, and that it doesn't approach the evidence and say what's there. It begs the question that, that philosophically, miracles can never happen. So as you get started, you'll never find one because you've begged the question that they don't happen in the first place. So we've seen, if God is real, we can believe in the, in the biblical miracles. Hume's argument is arguing in a circle. We're going to look at the last thing we do here. We're going to look very quickly at Jesus because a lot of what we do hinges on Jesus. I'm going to show you four facts about Jesus' resurrection. Fact number one, after his crucifixion, Jesus was buried in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. Fact number two, on the Sunday following the crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his woman followers. Fact number three, on multiple occasions and under various circumstances, different individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus alive from the dead. Fact number four, the original disciples believed that Jesus had risen from the dead despite having every predisposition to the contrary. These four facts are not as disputed as you would think they are. You may think people don't think any of that's true. Historically speaking, evidence speaking, these four facts 
seem to hold lots of weight, both inside the Christian community and outside the Christian community. The problem that we have is the interpretation of these facts. Christians say, well, there seems to be a very clear interpretation of these four, four facts. Non-believers say, no, 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 that's, they don't, they don't mean that Jesus is actually God. Those four facts can occur and something else happen. Well, let's look at the options. Option number one, the disciples stole the body of Jesus. Option number two, Jesus didn't fully die. A sort of Monty Python, I'm not dead yet kind of thing, right? Number three, they were all hallucinating. Some type of mass college party where they all did the same type of drugs. Number four, it was all a grand trick. It was one of those long-term, he's got a twin sort of thing, right? And then number five, Jesus was actually the Messiah. We don't have time to get into it now, but an option should have explanatory scope, explanatory power. It should be plausible. It shouldn't be ad hoc, meaning it shouldn't come out of nowhere. And it should be in accord with common accepted beliefs of the day. If you think about all the top four, They're not very plausible. They don't have that much explanatory power. And some of them are totally ad hoc. They were all hallucinating. That was a thought that was very common a long time ago. It's just out of nowhere. It doesn't make any sense. All the other ones don't have the same explanatory power, explanatory scope, or possibility. It is absolutely reasonable to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. But you have to go back. If I just say that, you might be like, no, it's not. But go backwards. It's absolutely plausible that Jesus or God rose Jesus from the dead if you can believe that biblical miracles are true. And if you can believe that biblical miracles are true based on the belief in God, you have a very clear line that goes from God's existence to the resurrection of Jesus. Let me recap by this statement. If God exists, then we must allow for relevant supernatural data to be present in naturally impossible situations. In the resurrection, we are justified in in accepting a supernatural explanation of the facts. God raising Jesus from the dead is therefore not only possible, it succeeds as a superior hypothesis. Therefore, you can believe in biblical miracles. I'm a little bit over time, but how do we make sense of this? You might be like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Go to lunch and say, I don't know anything he just said. Here, how, here's how I want you to make sense of this. If this was all too much for you and you're like, he talked too fast, I don't know what he was saying, I want you to know this. Maybe you're the type of person who goes, I don't need to know all the data. I just need to know that someone does. Someone does, okay? We do. We know what we're talking about. If you've been a Christian for a long time and you're like, fingers crossed, I hope some people know how this all works, we do, okay? We do. We absolutely do. We have good arguments for it. If you're someone who's investigating and you're like, well, is this all true? Is, is there any logic here or is it all just people who've, you know, kind of like feeling their way through it? There is logic here. And we are also feeling our way through it. There's both. If you are absolutely here maybe for the first time and you're thinking, is this reasonable? It's reasonable. I want everyone here, whether young or old, wherever you're at, to walk away knowing that a belief in Jesus is reasonable. Reasonable. I'm not saying you have to. I'm saying it's reasonable. Okay? But here's the thing. 
I also want to put the pressure on us in this situation. I want to go back to the passages that we read earlier. Because you may be like me and think to yourself, oh, this is awesome. The biblical miracles are real. God's real. There's arguments for it. That's awesome. And you might be amazed in wonder. Oh, so awesome. But there's one passage that I think is really important. It says this. After they lowered that guy into the house to be seen by Jesus, Jesus says to the man, young man, everyone's waiting for it. They're like, this is the part where he heals him. And he says, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> and the Pharisees go, what? They basically look at themselves and say, who does this guy think he is? That's blasphemy. And here's the thing with us in our own lives. I may be able to present to you very clearly an argument for the existence of God. One that is backed up by science, argued by philosophers, is pretty airtight. I may be even to be able to prove to you that biblical miracles happened solidly. I'm able to feel passionate about it and give to you numerous evidential lines to say this is how it happened. And you might go, yes, this is awesome. But I guarantee you, if I deliver to you what Jesus wants you to do in your life, you might stop me and say, ooh, who does this guy think he is? That's blasphemy. I may be able to deliver to you an argument for the existence of God and the reliability of the biblical miracles and the evidence for Jesus' resurrection and then say, now go and sell all of your possessions and walk with Jesus. And you may say, wait a minute, that's blasphemy. But that's what Jesus said. At the moment of Jesus being all-powerful, he often sidestepped and showed people the sacrifice that it took to follow him. That's what I'm leaving you with. You know, you probably won't hear a sermon like this again for a while, right? A philosophical argument like this. But you, what you will hear is a lot of what Jesus wants for your life. Think of me. Let me haunt your nightmares, okay? Both with the donut hole thing and with this. <laughs> that if Jesus is real, if all of what I said today does hold, then the claims that Jesus makes about your life are powerful and ought to be given weighty consideration. They ought to be given serious consideration. Okay? Here's how I want you to respond. The band will come up. Hopefully we have enough time to sing another song. Um, there's prayer points on either side. If you've thought, wow, this is uh, interesting. I want to talk about it. Come up and talk about it. They may ask you to pray. They might ask you to, to just talk to God about it. If you're a longtime Christian, you're like, this was awesome. I feel convicted and I just want to pray some things. Come and visit these people. We will pray with you. If you have any questions or any thoughts, I will be up here after this morning. I'd love to talk. I promise you, if you listen to the podcast this week, you will be entertained. I think it will be fun. Do miracles happen in our modern day? I think we've seen that they happen in the Bible has one happened in the last week? Has one happened here? Have you ever seen one? Is that even possible? Let me pray. God, thank you so much for allowing me to be here, Lord. I thank you for every single member of this congregation. I thank you for the people in this room, Lord, that they went with this, that they allowed themselves to be impressed upon through these arguments for your existence. God, you don't need an argument to prove that you exist. Our experience of you is so powerful. But Lord, I, I pray that these arguments, that these words back up your existence and that we can feel confident and reasonable in our belief of you and that we feel passionate about following you. Lord, we love you. 
we approach you with humility and grace as we seek to understand how powerful and mighty you are. Amen.